Scano Segawani, Bojo Kwekwe, Tansi. Good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth on Element FM. You are listening on uh, 106.5 in Toronto and 95.7 in Ottawa. Or you could be listening on the Radio Player Canada app. And if you type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM, you could be listening anywhere uh, you would like across this country uh, on your choice of device. Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. And I would like to welcome our guest today. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be quite an interesting topic we have for you today. We have Mr. Paul uh, Nadeau, and he is the author of Take Control of Your Life. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about Paul because uh, the the title, Take Control of Your Life, may not necessarily uh, give you a sense of the man who is sitting next to me. Uh, and actually, I guess, you know, with his with his background, uh, I don't want to say he's making me a little bit nervous, but with some of his skills, uh, that could be that could be something because you know, he could read he can read how I'm sitting here looking at you know he's he's looking at how I'm sitting and he's judging uh, he can size me up in no time at all. So he's a retired police detective and a hostage negotiator. He's completed 31 years at the police service career. He's specialized in several areas of law enforcement and international peacekeeping. Among those areas, including hostage and crisis negotiations, domestic violence investigations and training, international peacekeeping, counterterrorism in Jordan in 2005, homicide investigations, sexual assault, child abuse investigations, professional interrogations, and polygraphs. That's just a little bit of what this man uh, has done over the years. And now he's written this very interesting book because uh, the book, as I mentioned, Take Control of Your Life, what Paul does in this book is he he has taken his experience and he's r- molded in his own personal experience and said said and come out the other side of all this and said you know what we take ourselves hostage and he explains this through this book how we do that and you might be thinking you might already recognize what he means by that. And you might be thinking, how does he do that? We're going to explore some of those things in the next hour. I'm very pleased to have Paul with us. And uh, again, I just want to tell you that he is a, a very highly um, uh, decorated uh, man in the peacekeeping branch of the United Nations, international keynote speaker. He's also been on the Toronto TED Talks. So this guy's um, uh, he's been around and he's getting himself uh, out there and sharing these ideas with many people. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. I'm so pleased to be here. And hello, everybody. Uh, I hope that uh, what I have to share with you in the next hour is going to resonate with you and it's going to make a difference in your life. Thanks again, David. Oh, you're very welcome. You know, I can't help but think that um, the many areas that you have been involved with, homicide investigations, hostage crisis negotiations, domestic violence, child assault and child abuse, none of these things... um, you know, well, they're all very serious topics. They're all very serious issues that uh, we hear about people coming back from from fighting in battles with post-traumatic stress disorder. Right. Um, how did you deal with that? Because I'm sure that this is stuff that in many days left you very, very troubled. It, it did. Uh, how I dealt with it, I, I suppose I, I recognized uh, that when you when you deal with evil mm. on a consistent basis, it can affect you. Yeah. I mean, I mean, when you are a victim of crime, when you are a victim of, of abuse, whatever it is, 
it can affect you deeply. But I, I also, from a very young age, began to uh, set up defense mechanisms, mechanisms within myself. I learned that. I, you know, I came from a very abusive background, mm-hmm. and I had to learn at a young age to depend on myself. So when these things, when, when I was faced with, with evil, I recognized that, that I didn't have to fall into the pit. And by, by that, I mean I didn't have to be that affected by it. I would be, but I was strong enough to get myself out of it. The doctor who was uh, uh, examining me, uh, a psychiatrist, before I went uh, and was deployed mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. Middle East, mm-hmm. they have to examine every peacekeeper sure. to determine whether or not you can or you will likely come back with post-traumatic stress. You're so right. that was one of the big sure. concerns. And uh, I, he, he said, you know, your father killed himself. You know, you've been dealing with all this trauma in your life. And, and by that time, I'd had uh, over 20 years in the police department, and I was a hostage negotiator. And I looked at him and I said, doctor, don't you think that if I would have uh, been susceptible to, uh, it, you know, to this kind of thing, that it might not have come out before now? And he said, Good point. And he let me through. And, and I'm happy to say that, that I made it through without mm. it. But to answer your question, I think it comes from a determination within is to, I'm stronger than these circumstances. Mm. And once we begin to be aware that, um, that we are stronger than what we're dealing with and that we can get out on the other side, that awareness gives us power. I'm glad you mentioned that because that is something I wrote down that I wanted to address. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we get into this. And I, I, I think that, you know, I, and we talked a little bit about my own, my own story. And, and I know that from my own experience that you have to become aware. If you don't have that awareness, then not, nothing much that anyone either says to you or uh, for even their, their best attempts at helping you can't do much unless it sinks in and you, you get that you're at the point where you can you can take that information in and recognize it and go aha right and and use that to then start take those those positive steps forward oh that that's so true because you know we go through life and uh, things happen to us good things bad things and and a lot of us are dealing with uh, adversity strife setbacks uh, we were talking about this a little bit before the show, is that, uh, you know, we are so similar uh, in our lives. We are more similar than we are different. Mm. It doesn't matter the color of our skin, our religion, our mm. backgrounds or whatever. The person sitting across from you is more similar to you than they are different. Mm. So if you're going through, uh, you know, some stuff in your life, then the person that you're sitting across from on the train is also going through some stuff. Mm-hmm. And... Unless we are aware of what we're going through and what our abilities and our strengths are, then, you know, our, our chances of dealing with it are much less. I, I really encourage people through my book and, and through my talks is that every once in a while, every two, three weeks, sit down and evaluate where your life is, mm. what's going right, what's going wrong. This helps to bring out that awareness. You take a sheet of paper, you say, okay, this is what's going right, and this is what's going wrong. Oh, geez, my relationships are not going that great. Am I being an idiot? Am I needing to do this? I become aware of my strengths and my weaknesses and what needs to be done. Mm-hmm. That's a good point, that idea about the journal, keeping that going. And, and yeah, I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right. If you write it down and see it in black and white and, and being honest with yourself. Really? As, as much as you can be, again, it goes back to that awareness thing, right? It's a, it's a continual process. 
So, uh, Paul, you mentioned a, a little bit about your, your background, and I, I'm just wondering if you can share, as you mentioned, your, your dad, uh, he killed himself when you were 17, but, but your dad was also uh, uh, someone who, who was not necessarily a healthy uh, person in your life when you were earlier. Uh, he, had, he suffered from alcoholism, I believe. Yes, he did. And he was abusive to your family, to your mom, and, and to your, your siblings? Extremely abusive. My father was very violent. He was a big man, like a, a very mm-hmm. strong man. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he had no patience for his family. And mm-hmm. with my dad, it was much about power and control, mm-hmm. as long as he had power and control over his family. He had two sides to him, a Jekyll and a Hyde. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the outside, with his friends, he had a large group of friends and people respected him. Mm-hmm. He was charismatic. Mm-hmm. This man could walk into a room and he could own the room in mm-hmm. a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. But the moment he stepped into our home was the moment that, uh, that his life fell apart mm-hmm. or that he felt that he needed to have control. Mm-hmm. So violently beating my mom, violently beating my older brother, and violently beating me. And we could do nothing. We walked on eggshells. But, you know, I, that was the life I knew. Mm. You know, I knew nothing different. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is what life is. Yeah. And we become conditioned, unfortunately. Sure, we sure do. Yeah. You know, and, and it, it's, it's almost, uh, and I talk about this in the book, learned helplessness. Mm. If you live in a, in a, uh, in a cage uh, with a, a, an electrical current going through it all the time, you become quite acclimatized to mm-hmm. that electrical current. Mm-hmm. Uh, current. It's like uh, living in an abusive relationship. Uh, you know, if you happen to be married to mm-hmm. someone who's abusive, mm-hmm. you st- start to think, well, this is my life. Right. Until you, you step out of it and you say, no, this is not supposed to be my life. Mm-hmm. I can take control right. of my life and change my circumstances. But my dad was that kind of guy who was so violent, so mean, and uh, at the age of seven, Here's an example. At the age of seven, uh, my brother and I, two weeks before Christmas, imagine this. I still believe in Santa Claus. You know, Santa Claus is coming to town. So and, do I, and I, so, <laughs> so do a lot of other people, by the way. It's oh, so. yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no but I got to say, and, and if you have children in the room, this is, this is the moment that you might want to uh, take them out of the room mm. just for a moment because right. I'm about to disclose something that uh, they may not want to hear. I no longer believe in Santa Claus, and I'll tell you why. Two weeks before uh, Christmas, uh, and uh, my brother and I are standing on the landing of our home, and we're all excited that Santa Claus is coming. My dad walks in from the outside, and I still remember that image. He's holding his twenty-two rifle, and he's looking up, because we're standing on the landing about uh, four or five feet above him, and he looks at us dead in the eyes, and he says, There ain't going to be a, a Christmas this year. I just killed Santa Claus. Yeah, and he took his rifle and he put it downstairs, and my brother and I broke, you know, I bet. broke apart. I bet. And about a week later, he sent a friend of his uh, who was uh, dressed up as Santa Claus. But at that time, I knew that Santa Claus yeah. was dead, and I pulled the guy's mask off, mm. and that was it. But mm-hmm. that's the kind of thing he brought me to a slaughterhouse when I was eight. I read that. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I, I saw pigs being slaughtered. Mm. Who? In his it sounded right, like very inhumanely at the time, by the way. Very much. And, and who in his right, mi- in his right mind mm. would bring his eight-year-old child, mm. you know, to a slaughterhouse with a, you know, and to witness the mm-hmm. slaughtering of pigs? Mm-hmm. I, that was the kind of uh, mm. father that I, I didn't have a role model other than to look at him and say, that's evil. Mm. That's bad. Mm-hmm. And at the age of seven, I decided to become a policeman so that I could arrest my dad. Right. And that was, uh, I guess, a bit of a turning point for you. Very much. I guess what I'm trying to get at there when I say that is that you had to start, you had to start at, at that point to become aware 
that, you know, this was not normal and that you could change something. And that had to, you had to find that because if you hadn't, you wouldn't have made that connection. You wouldn't have made those steps. Right. You wouldn't have changed your life around and moved forward as you did. No, I, you're absolutely right. Awareness. But at the age of seven, I still wasn't aware of what my capabilities were or, or the direction. Of course, right. we're seven years old. Yeah. And uh, another thing that had been conditioned into me at that time was I was disruptive in school. Mm. Like I was a, mm-hmm. a little bugger, mm-hmm. you know, like because I was acting out in school because I couldn't act out at home. Mm-hmm. And a lot of t- a lot of times you, you see a child acting out at, at school and you're thinking, kid's got a problem. Mm-hmm. Well, they don't realize that maybe that problem that stems from their home life, right. you know, and that's the only place that they can act out. Well, sure. that was me. I, mm-hmm. I was always given the strap. Mm-hmm. At the time we were, you know, we were given the straps, we were mm-hmm. given the ruler, mm-hmm. and that was me. And I was tied to my desk at one time by my teachers because I kept getting out of my seat and they warned me, if you get out of your seat one more time, Paul, we're going to tie you to your desk. And they <laughs> did. And when they came back, I was sitting on, on her I remember this teacher tied me to my desk, and when she came back from recess, I was sitting on her desk with a knife cutting up the rope. You know, so yeah, if they could have jailed me back then, they they should have. So, I, and I was always told, "You're not going to amount to anything. Mm. You're stupid. You're dumb. You're this. You're that." You know, like this was mm. coming from my father, mm. and this was coming from the very teachers mm. back then. You mm. know, like early '60s. You know, yeah. like uh, you know who were telling me, you know. Paul, you know, we're going to give you 40%, but we don't want you in our class next year, so we're going to graduate you anyway. Mm-hmm. And I believed that, you know, mm-hmm. until until the the uh, until grade 7. Grade 7 I started to, uh, to you know to really be attracted to girls and and I rem- I remember I had this bad boy, you know, like mm-hmm. loser mm-hmm. Uh, label that was given me mm-hmm. and even by the girls that I kind of liked now mm-hmm. and I didn't like that label. Mm-hmm. But that was a label that I come to believe in. Mm-hmm. And one teacher in particular, uh, and I remember this man, he, uh, you know, he looked at me and he, he comes in and he's going to do this test for the class. And he says, I expect everybody in the classroom to pass this test, except for you, Nadeau. Right. I already know that you're going you're gonna to fail. Right. And that was the pinch that I needed because I was so embarrassed at that moment. Mm. And that was the first moment that I really felt that, that deep embarrassment. Mm. Up until then, it wouldn't have bothered me. But right. now, you know, I had something. I had girls, you right. know, that I was pursuing and stuff like that. And I thought, okay, this is not good. That's the first time, David, I went back home and I started to study. Mm. And, and I wrote that test. And as was customary in his class, he would always call the student with the lowest mark to the class first to right. pick up their papers. Mm-hmm. And I was conditioned to get up. Mm. So the night – or sorry, the day that uh, he was calling uh, the, the test results, I was expecting to get up. But I, I, I knew that I had done fairly well, at mm. least in my mind. I thought I, I kind of knew the answers. Right. But I almost got up the first time. He says, no, sit down, Paul, not you. And he starts calling name after name after name, and halfway through the class, the students are looking at me, and they got their they, they're shrugging their shoulders and kind of look at me and say, "Hey, aren't, are you going up?" And I'm kind of looking and saying, "I have no idea." Mm. And I was the second last to be called, mm. and that was the moment that was the defining moment in my mm-hmm. life where I realized that I was not a product of my past or my circumstances; that I could actually be in control of my destiny. And in, in grade seven, I changed everything. 
Now, I would also like to add that your your teacher helped you in that situation. He Was did. that a deliberate uh, reverse psychology uh, attempt, don't you think, on his part? You know, after years of thinking about this, at first I thought he just hated my guts. <laughs> but, uh, but the more I think about it, the mm. more I believe that you're right, mm. uh, that, you know, this was reverse psychology, everything he had tried before. Mm. I mean, this man had picked me up once. I remember I, I was being disruptive and he picked me up and he... Almost like a bowling alley. The uh, the classroom had just been waxed. The floor had just been waxed. So mm. he, he kind of grabs me like a bowling ball and mm. he kind of shifts his weight and he, he tosses me across the uh, across the floor. Mm. And I slid mm. right into a bunch of, uh, of uh, shoes and, and, mm. uh, and boots, you mm. know, at the end of the classroom. So I don't think he really loved me, but, <laughs> but I think he saw some potential in me. <laughs> so, he was frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> you think? <laughs> but... You know, doing that was that pinch that I needed, mm. is like that slap in the face to yep. say, you know what, get a life right. because Wake you up. are in control of it. So choose to get it or choose to lose. Yeah. And, and this is what people have to do. You choose your own destiny or you choose to lose. Yeah. And if you choose to lose, you don't, you don't become aware. You don't take the second step to move forward in your life and to say, my my past does not have to equal my future. I am not a product of my past. I'm not a product of my, my present unless I choose to be, but I can choose to be much better than my circumstances. You know, uh, something that comes to mind when you say that, and uh, this is, again, going to somewhat of my own experience and what I've seen uh, over the time that uh, I have spent, uh, yeah, I'll just say, I'll just leave it at that. What you just said, it to me, is also somewhat of privileged thinking. Being able to, to have those thoughts uh, is, is, is a privilege. And in many communities and, in, and for many people, they don't have that luxury. They haven't had that luxury of being right. able to have that privileged thinking right. because of situations they've been put in right. uh, for generations. Yes. Yes, uh, and and so we know we're, we're we're addressing some of the some of the issues that our First Nations people have, have been exposed to over <laughs> over hundred years, uh, in many cases, and that intergenerational trauma that happens. Um, now, of course, it's not everyone, and some people, everyone is an individual, uh, but uh, there is something to be said about about that idea that. It's like it goes. It goes back to uh, the comment you hear about indigenous people, and some people say, "Just get over it, mm. you know, that, get over it." Yeah. Well, that is a privileged thought. Yeah, you're coming from a, a place that you you are able to think that way, but in, many indigenous people have not had that uh, that opportunity. Right. So it's interesting because it goes back. It still ties in with these things we're talking about and taking your yourself hostage, but being able to see the 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 that that invisible cage that you you mentioned that we build for ourselves mm-hmm. and our own thinking absolutely is is what we need uh, to to uh, get over the things that we're dealing with whoever it might be whatever it might be and this could be as, as you mentioned in your book it could be as little as uh, trying to uh, do something with your life that uh, you want to lose some weight yep right you want to yep. go work out and yep. you can sabotage yourself mm-hmm. by uh, thinking oh it's going to be easy to do or i don't have to start that now or it's only one candy right, right? Or, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah i'll yeah. just have this now i'll start that tomorrow yeah. and boom right there it, it you're you're caving in you're already giving yourself into those hostages that you've mentioned yes yeah and, and uh, for for anyone who's not read my book 
the the concept of hostage to myself, which you've touched on, is is the fact that we we take ourselves hostage by the little voices in our heads mm-hmm. that tell us that we're not good enough, or that we can never get out of our circumstances, right. or that we're not worthy enough, yep. we're not good looking enough, nobody will ever give me a job, you know, all, all these negative things, and it's not just us, you know, that, that come up with these thoughts. Society does. People do. People look at you and, and like they did to me, you know, like at a young age, says, you are not worthy enough to, to make it in this life. You're stupid. You're this, you're that. And we tend to internalize the, these voices in our heads. And that's what's going through our heads when, when we're looking at a situation and thinking, I can't possibly lose weight. Why is that? Because it's just not in me. I don't have that strength. Mm. That's being a hostage to your thoughts, a yep. hostage to yourself. Yep. The difference between a physical hostage, somebody who's taken hostage, uh, say, on an airplane, and you, is that the person who's taken a host- being taken hostage on an airplane can't make uh, a, a move to free themselves mm-hmm. without putting their lives at serious risk. Right. Whereas when you take yourself hostage by the voices in your head, you can move forward and say, no, I can take a key. I can get the help of someone else. I can go, like, for, for example, I could go to you, David, and say, David, I need some assistance here. I need some help here. Can you give me some direction, some advice? Whatever it is, mm. I can unhostage myself. I can choose to, to rely on other people, rely on myself first. Number one, you've got to rely on yourself. Number two, it's okay to ask for help. Mm. And number three, you are strong enough to get out of whatever it is that you're in. And you're right. Some people don't have access to this information. So it's nice for me to say, but unless they know uh, the steps to take to unhostage them this, uh, themselves, they remain hostages to their circumstances. So I, I'm, I'm smirking a little bit as you're <laughs> mentioning some of these things. We have to take a pause, but sure. I want to come back and I want to talk about help and not worthy uh, because I'm going, I'm thinking to myself, uh, what, what I thought about was that old financial uh, statement about uh, you know, asking your your father in law or something for financial advice. Right? <laughs> yeah. You have to get it from the right person. <laughs> yeah, you do. Yes, you do. <laughs> so we're gonna, we're going to take a pause right here on Element FM and Moment of Truth. We'll be right back with Paul Nadeau right here on Moment of Truth. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on Element FM. You are listening in Toronto and Ottawa. In Ottawa, ninety five point seven. In Toronto, at one hundred six point five. You could also be listening on. Radio Player Canada app. If you download that app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM, you can be listening anywhere across the country on the device of choice. I also like to mention that uh, if you're you're uh, just tuning in, we're we're talking to Paul Nadeau. He is the author of Take Control of Your Life. He is also a uh, celebrated. Uh, police detective who has had many years. He's retired at this point, but he has had uh, a very, very um, uh, interesting life, to say the least, with, with the things that he has done. And he has turned that, uh, that experience, both personal and professional, into a book that is somewhat self-help, uh, motivational, but also makes us look at uh, how we in our own minds can take ourselves hostage with our own thoughts. That's part of what he has done in his professional world when he was a uh, when he worked in hostage and crisis negotiations in domestic violence and in, and investigations in international peacekeeping. And you know, one of the things he did in international peacekeeping was spent some time in uh, in Jordan. Yes, and uh, it was a you were training. Um, you were training training cadets. 
Iraqi cadets, yes. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, back in uh, 2004, uh, the RCMP, International Peacekeeping Branch, uh, who were working with the United Nations, approached our police department uh, because we had participated in peacekeeping missions in the past. But mm. for a few years, our department uh, didn't pursue it. Uh, in 2004, they they had a, a need for peacekeepers across the world, and they came to our police department and said, are you interested in getting involved again? And at the time, I had a wonderful inspector who had done a peacekeeping mission, and he was on board with this, and he, he grabbed the reins, and he said, yes, we are. And I was looking through a list of potential places to go, and Jordan was one of them. And the mission in Jordan was to train Iraqi police officers mm. to uh, to defend their land, mm. to to be police officers, uh, to uh, to start uh, you know treating each other with dignity and respect, human uh, rights, all that kind of thing that mm-hmm. we were hoping mm-hmm. to establish in Iraq before it fell apart. Mm-hmm. And I joined uh, the International Peacekeeping Branch and was deployed to, uh, to Jordan in uh, January of 2005, and I spent a year there. And as you, uh, as you indicated, my job was to teach Iraqi police cadets, and my job was uh, human rights, to teach them human rights and also criminal investigations. And every uh, two weeks, I would get a class of about 50 to 55 police cadets. And I want you to imagine this. I had uh, cadets who were as young as 16, and mm-hmm. they weren't supposed to be. The, the age was supposed to be 18. Mm. But Iraq was in such desperate need of right. police officers, they sent us 3,000 police cadets every eight weeks. Can I, how many cadets and police officers were they looking to try to train? You know? uh, well, the, the problem was um, as many as they possibly could. Mm. So every eight weeks, imagine this. Uh, 3,000 police cadets were sent to us yep. every eight weeks. The problem that they were experiencing, uh, that uh, of these 3,000 that were being sent back to the country, 50% of them were being executed the moment they walked into uh, their country because uh, terrorists were waiting for them at the borders. They, uh, the uh, government was sending them back by busload, mm. and uh, they were getting shot up and killed even before they got back to their homes. Wow. It was so sad, you know, that, that, that so they were trying to get as many police officers working. Mm. But of, of the, uh, say you had 100, uh, 100 cadets, mm-hmm. of 100, maybe 15 or 20 would actually be active police officers right. by the time this was all said and done. Now, the other thing that's interesting, of course, is is a situation where you sort of became a hostage yes. at the camp that's one of the other interesting things that 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 developed and actually came out and i want i want i want you to talk about that and I, I i briefly right but the other thing i why you survive that i i believe from what you have expressed and, and your book is full of this right and what it's full of and from what i've seen of your presentations is that that your book comes down to a very simple principle. And that very simple principle is respect. Yes. It's respect. Bottom line. Bottom line, you respect somebody, if you deal with them in a respectful manner and and take that time to establish that that respect and and, and sincerity, um, and... You know, it it can benefit you in multiple ways. Oh, you know what, David? You're one of the very few people who is able to summarize what what my entire message has been in just a few words, and that's remarkable. You're right. 
whether it's a keynote that I'm doing, whether it's a, it's an interview that I'm doing, my book comes down to a, a couple, as you said, simple principles in life that not only can, it will improve your life in every aspect of it if you choose to use it. Mm. And here they are, you know, and for everyone listening out there, here are the secrets to, to success, the secrets to love, the secrets to whatever. Write this down. Yeah, write this down, <laughs> you know, really. Uh, number one, we are more similar than we are different. Yeah, for sure. No matter the color of our skin, the religion or whatever, we all go through the same stuff. So when you recognize that the person sitting across from you is as imperfect as you are, because mm-hmm. we are imperfect people mm-hmm. living in an imperfect world, we are all going through stuff. We all bleed, laugh, love the same way. We all have families. We all have uh, passions. We all have sorrows. And, 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 and everything is so similar. That's number one to recognize. Number two is that if you want to get anywhere in life with another individual, if you want to get cooperation, me as a hostage negotiator, I had to treat the person on the other end of the line, the hostage taker, with dignity and respect. I had to hear them out first before I could ask them to consider what I had to say. So when we treat each other the way that we want to be treated ourselves, we can make great strides no matter what it is. We can build bridges as opposed to building walls. So many people are talking about building walls these days. Mm. The key to building bridges is communication and dealing with one another, uh, one another with dignity and respect. You know, we don't have to always uh, agree with what people uh, have to say, but let's sit down and listen to what they have to say and recognize that they may be saying it from their circumstances because I may not understand uh, you know, what somebody is going through because they've been through such hardships for a hundred mm-hmm. years, mm-hmm. you know, that I don't completely understand it, but tell me about it. And let me be here not to judge you, but to understand. Let me be here to to treat you with the same dignity and respect I would want to be treated with in return and watch how we can build those bridges. That's what it comes down to. Now, the, the other thing when you just said that about uh, not understanding and being uh, 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 developing that, uh, that relationship and that, that respect uh, in, 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 in the case of, of indigenous people in this country and, um, and the relationship between the, uh, the parties involved, whether it be provincial or federal uh, and, and business or whoever those things might be, it's not only being um, respectful, it's, it's taking action that is respectful. Yes. It's, it's moving forward in a respectful manner that shows that you are sincere. Right. Because it can fall apart quickly if there is no action. As you said, on a personal level, you have to take action. You could recognize things, you can see things, but without action, it falls apart. Yep. Yep. I, I mentioned it in the book, too, is that, you know, we can have all these great thoughts. Is like, hey, I want to go out and I want to lose uh, 50 pounds. Well, how am I going to do that? I'm going to go to the gym. Yeah, okay, okay. So I've talked to myself and, and uh, I've got rid of the self-sabotaging, uh, you know, voices. Yes, you can do this. What happens? I'm not going. Why? Well, I got too many things today. You know, unless your good thoughts and your good intentions are followed by action, it amounts to nothing. Mm. You can say all the wonderful things or think all the wonderful things, but unless you go, if I need to ask for forgiveness and I think, okay, yeah, I've done something wrong and I need to ask David for forgiveness. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I've got a plan. Are you going to do it? Yeah, I'm going to do it. When are you going to do it? Don't know. Uh, Maybe I won't do it today. Unless I follow that through with action, I'll get nothing. Mm. There There are no results without action. 
Yes, absolutely correct. And that, uh, as we said, that action has to be positive and it has to move in a, in a positive manner to the results you're looking for. And that's an interesting comment to make in terms of even if we look at this on a personal level or on a, a national level dealing with uh, Indigenous issues uh, that have, in many cases, as we see, even even in the news that uh, that's of recent days where we have a community in the north that has been waiting to be moved to, to higher, drier ground and and. Still nothing, whereas, you know, people are are in other communities are are getting help and it just boggles the mind Uh, for the things that have gone on uh, for for a long time. And we don't see action uh, to to move these things forward and and uh, and be resolved in a in a respectful way. You're right. And and tell me why some groups receive uh, better treatment than others. Mm. You know, when we're supposed to be living in a fair society that treats, uh, you know, one group equally as, as another, why are some groups being, uh, being uh, addressed and, and helped over others? It doesn't make it right. And it comes down to leadership. Mm. It comes down to leadership's awareness that something is not right in this country. Mm. We need to change that. We need to treat everybody, you know, like with the same dignity and respect that we treat, uh, you know, anybody. You know, right. like, yeah, it, it comes down to taking the right action. Now, we got off topic a little bit, but I want to come back to this. First of all, in, in terms of asking for help and getting the right help, getting right. to oh, the yeah. right people yeah. uh, that can answer the questions that you need answered. Um, and that's that's one thing. And so going to someone that uh, that is in the same situation perhaps as you is not necessarily the, the same person to you know the right person to go and ask for some help right that's that's a little thing but I want to go back to the Jordanian camp because I want to I want after we talked about that whole thing about respect and about about uh, what you were doing there there's a situation where uh, one day because it was very you mentioned that that you had a group of you mentioned that the age of these people you mentioned the different backgrounds uh, to some degree I know you had a person who made coffee uh, you had uh, you had had uh, um, uh, other, and you mentioned some people were criminals. Oh yeah, some people were in fact terrorists that had yes. infiltrated the camp and That's were taking right. home a paycheck. That's right. But the other thing is, you had opposing factors sitting next to you. Now, the thing that I find really interesting about this is what you decided to do to figure out how can I get through to these people to make them feel good about what they are doing here because they're away from their families. Mm-hmm. Um, they are doing, and you did something, I believe, that is very indigenous. Oh. Do you know what that is? No. You sat around and had stories and sang songs. Ah, uh, yes. That is so right. And that's what connected us. Yeah. That is what connected us. Isn't that interesting? That is amazing. That is, you know what, that is amazing. I, you know, I, I'm feeling actually really warm right now because, uh, you know, it just goes to show, you know, once you, once you find something that, that appeals to another individual because you're, you're there with them, bridges are built. There you, know? you go. So, so that you, makes me feel So good. can you explain just briefly about how the different factors that were sitting around telling stories to each other and here they are b- battling each other outside <laughs> of this camp? Yeah. Yeah. Just explain that. Story. I certainly can. Um, when I got there, uh, I decided the first thing I would do with a brand new class of 50 to 55 uh, students every two weeks is I, I would stand there and I'd give them my opening speech. And my opening speech was Hi, I'm Paul. I'm from Canada. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to share my experiences with you and to hopefully help you uh, to, to gain some new, uh, some new skills to help you uh, in, in your pursuit as police officers when you get back home. I'm here to treat you with dignity and respect, and I would appreciate the same in return. 
So let's have fun. That was my my little mm-hmm. speech. Mm-hmm. Let's have fun. And uh, I had Sunnis, Shiites, and the occasional terrorists who had mm-hmm. infiltrated the academy mm-hmm. in my classroom. Right. So we had a lot of conflict originally. Yeah. But I treated everybody. I had fun. I'm an actor too. Mm-hmm. You know. So I would act out a lot of my things. Or mm-hmm. I'd be very energetic. I'd jump up on a right. table and I'd have my language assistants. Right. One of the things I told my language assistants before they they joined me is. If I jump up on a table and I yell and scream and I shout, I want you to jump on a table and, and imitate me. <laughs> right. Because if I'm doing it sure. and, and they don't understand what I'm doing, right. you know, yeah, yeah. I'm just, you know, like, <laughs> there's, there's an English voice. He's yelling and screaming yeah, right. with, without the same passion coming from the language assistant. <laughs> right. It's not going to work. Sure. So, so they did it. And I got to realize, like, these guys were getting up at 430, mm. you know, 16-year-olds to 65-year-olds. You know, some of them were, were lawyers. Some of them were uh, coffee makers. Some of them had never had a formal education before. Right. Uh, most of them were, were heartbroken. They were lonely. They needed, uh, you know, they, they'd never been away from home for even one night. Mm. They didn't have internet. Some of mm-hmm. them, you know, some of them had university degrees. Sure. So we had such a mix. Sunnis, Shiites, terrorists, educated, non-educated people. And I wanted to make their experience fun. And some of the instructors out in that academy were not making these men's lives, uh, mm. you know, very good. Mm. They were calling them names. You know, I mean, this was war. Sure. You know, like the United sure. States, 9-11 had happened. Mm. There was a lot of anger. And some of the students were coming in and they were thinking, are you going to treat me just as bad as the, right. the, that last teacher? Right. You know, because I hated yeah. him. Mm. But no, they came in and they had a different experience. So at the end of the day, I knew that they were up at 4.30. They were already exhausted at 8 a.m. when they came into my class. Mm. So I need to make it energetic. Sure. I need to get them involved. So I'll, I'll say, David, get up. What? You're going to be the policeman today. And, you know, and, and Assad, you know, you're going to be the criminal. And you, you know, like uh, Muhammad, you, you're going to be, uh, you know, the shopkeeper. You know? And so mm. I, would, I would get them to act it out. They, right. they had fun. 45 minutes uh, Forty-five minutes before the end of the day, I'd say, okay, guys, you've had a long day. This is what we're going to do. Does anybody know how to sing? Does anybody know how to, t- you know, tell stories? Because mm. that's what we're going to do for the next 45 minutes. Mm. And, you know, I'd see a stunned look, you know, the first day sure. of my class, they'd go, really? You know, and then one person would reluctantly uh, would raise their hand and I'd say, okay, and start, they'd start singing beautifully. Mm. And the empty jugs of, you know, five gallon jugs of water, a couple of students would get up and they'd go back and they'd grab the em- empty uh, jugs of water and start beating <laughs> the drums. Drum, right? Oh my Lord. I, and I'm sitting there and, and I'm just, wow, this is like American Idol. Mm-hmm. You know, this is like mm-hmm. Canadian. They're so good. Mm-hmm. And they're laughing and telling stories and we're sitting back and I had to go to my language assistant every once in a while and say, what are they talking about? Mm. And he would say, well, they're laughing so hard because this one cadet is is singing a story about how his was an arranged uh, marriage and mm. his wife was covered until their wedding night. Mm. And I said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and on their wedding night, she took off her veil. Yeah, yeah. And she looked like a goat. And, and, and I thought, oh, now I understand. So I'd start to laugh with them. And, it, it, you know, and this was our ritual, uh, mm. you know, and they were always excited when they came to my classes. Right. Like, are we going to sing today? Right. Yes, we're going to sing. We're going to tell stories. Yeah. Some of the stories were heartbreaking and I wonderful bet. and just sure. beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I reached them uh, through storytelling and music. Mm. And, and that, you know, and, and they lo- I felt like Michael Jackson after my classroom. Mm. David, I'd walk out of my classroom, I'd open the door very carefully, mm-hmm. and I'd peek outside, and when I walked outside, 30 of them were waiting for me. They'd come over and they'd, you know, Mr. Paul, Mr. Paul, Mr. Mm-hmm. Paul. Mm-hmm. 
so I developed that that respect mm. and that dignity, and it was through that mm. that uh, one of the students ended up saving my life. Yeah, we'll come back and, and talk briefly about that. We do have to take a pause at this time. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM. Our guest today is Paul Nadeau. He is the author of Take Control of Your Life. It's a pleasure to have him here. We'll be right back after this. And we're back on Moment of Truth and Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses. Our guest today in the studio is Mr. Paul Nadeau. He is the author of Take Control of Your Life. He's also an ex-police officer and uh, detective and he's had uh, he's worked for the um, uh, domestic violence investigations and training he's worked for international peacekeeping and we're having I believe a very uh, a very interesting conversation about how uh, his book talks about uh, how you can be, be be your own hostage taker with your own thoughts and 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 ideas that you, uh, you self-sabotage yourself with by saying, basically, I can't, or, oh, I'll do it tomorrow, or that's going to be too hard, or whatever those things are that we that we self-sabotage and, and let play in our mind. Paul, I have a question for you. As I'm saying this, I'm wondering if you can answer this, and I don't know if you can. Why do we think these things? <laughs> Why do we think negative thoughts about ourselves so much? Because we listen to the outside world that tell us that we have to be a particular way. And we begin to measure whether or not we fit the the ideal model that somebody else has come up with. Mm. And by that, I mean you walk out and you see a billboard and there's a, a guy wearing a million-dollar suit and says, you know, you're nobody until you, you get this million-dollar mm. suit. And we think, I need to get a million-dollar suit. Mm. Uh, we see, uh, you know, billboards or, or commercials with the perfect, beautiful body, whether that's male or female. And we think, oh, well, that's what I need to be, when in fact we don't. All we need to be is ourselves. But unfortunately, we begin to listen to what other people say. The, the teachers, uh, I, I used an example earlier when we were talking, uh, some of the people's or even uh, my own dad saying, you know, you're not going to amount to anything, you mm-hmm. know, like you're, you're mm-hmm. not smart. Mm-hmm. And we start to believe this, mm-hmm. this, this, mm-hmm. Uh, these lies. Right. And uh, we're not strong enough to say no. But I guess that's what I'm saying is, is, is that, that's exactly the, the, like why I'm asking is because we even do it to each other. Like you just mentioned, you know, your do. dad, our parents do this, or we say things. Maybe we do them unconsciously. Uh, maybe we've been told that and we've handed it down. Maybe uh, they were told that and they handed it down. Uh, it's just bizarre to me that, like you just pointed out about this this uh, commercialized world or whatever it might be that, that uh, you know, you have to have this in order. It's very counterintuitive to be to, to allow us to be successful. It, it really is. Uh, and it's destructive, mm. you know, and that's why we and that's how easily we can get hostaged, mm. you know, like but by listening to the lies being mm. fed to us mm. and not believing in our own strengths and abilities, because everyone, everyone, unless unless you are, you know, like you are impaired or unable to or whatever, but everyone has the ability to become the best they possibly can, and to move beyond their present present circumstances. When I look at some people, uh, you know, some some amazing world influencers, for example, Oprah Winfrey, mm. you know, whose background, mm-hmm. you know, like she was raped. She was, you know, like uh, she was always told she was, you know, too big. She'd never amount to anything. Mm-hmm. She didn't listen to the lies. Right. She, she never became a hostage to her circumstances right. or to what other people told her. Right. She chose to be powerful within herself and to go beyond uh, what people limited her to do. You know, when when you decide that, no, you are in control of your life, you can take control of your life, you can move and do whatever you want, and it's okay to fail. 
You're going to fail many times before you succeed, and that's okay. Some of the biggest successes today are people who failed 20 times. I know uh, there's that that example of uh, Edison with the light bulb. You know, (laughs) Uh, he didn't he didn't fail. Uh, a thousand times he just did it the wrong way yeah. or something to that effect, That's true. right? Yeah, yeah. Now, you made the example of uh, Lincoln yes. in your book. Yep, I did. Uh, I had no idea, uh, you know, that of his failures and how much uh, went against him uh, in terms of trying to, uh, you know, run for, for different levels of government and different things. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I look even at my own life, uh, you know, when I after my divorce, mm. um, you know, I, I had security before my divorce. Mm. I had an income coming in and everything seemed to be going really well for me. And then when the divorce happened, uh, I lost that security mm. and everything kind of fell apart. Mm. Uh, but then I had to rebuild myself and it was a trial and error. You know, now what do I do? I had left my police, uh, my secure job, mm. my secure income. I had left that to pursue another career. Un- unbeknownst to me that a divorce would happen, that my, my wife at the time would want a divorce. Mm-hmm. And so um, that security that I had was taken away from me. And then I had a choice. Do you give up or do you get moving? Mm. And a lot of people give up and they say, well, whoa, me, you know, th- this terrible thing has happened to me. No, you know, like like Lincoln, you know, if he failed at one thing, it's like or or and it's not always a failure. It, it's it's a setback, you know, yeah. and, and let's not call it failure. Let's call it setback. OK, I tried this. It didn't work. Do I stop or do I continue knocking on doors? Right. Continue knocking on doors. And if there's no door, build a you know, build, build one, one. Or, or, or look for a window and crawl right. through the window. Yeah. Whatever it is that you want to do, don't let anybody or even yourself tell you you can't do it because the moment you do, you become a hostage to yourself. You know, that's really interesting. Again, it's a simple, it's a very simple thing. And I wrote this down. Uh, as you just said, don't let yourself, don't don't let yourself tell you that. Right. And that's like, wait a minute. <laughs> wait a minute. It's right. We, our own selves that are telling us this. It's like this dual brain we have that we want to achieve, and yet this other side of us, and, and I think it comes back to something you mentioned in your book, we try to avoid pain at, at all levels. We do, yeah, yeah. We are conditioned to do that, you know, and that is a defense uh, mechanism for us, and it's a safety mechanism mm. for us. Mm. We don't go to a hot stove, put our hand on, on the hot stove, and leave it there because it's going to burn us. So, you know, our, our cells tell us, no, this is a bad thing to do. Mm-hmm. The unfortunate thing is that, that uh, you know, unless we're feeling the direct pain, you know, sometimes we will tell ourselves these self-destructive things that will, that will be as bad as burning ourselves on the stove because mm. we will Prevent live in that from, sorrow, right. that setback, yeah. and, and we're, we're burning up inside. Yeah. And I remember dealing with victims of sexual assault, mm. you know, and, and I, two sets of similar circumstances. Mm. But granted, everybody comes from a different background. So everybody chooses to, to react to adversity or setbacks in mm. different ways. But, for example, if I was talking to two different victims, one, on the other hand, would tell me, you know what, Detective Nadeau, I'm not, uh, you know, a, a victim here. Uh, you know, it happened to me. It was a bad thing, but I'm not going to let this man, you know, determine my right, life. Right. I'm moving forward. Yes. Whereas I'd go into the next room and talk to a young girl who had shaved her all her hair off, who had said, you know, I'm a bad person. I never should have been there and I'm never going to get over this. Mm. What is it about the two people? What is it about the victim, uh, you know, who chooses to remain a victim and the survivor who chooses to, to become a survivor? Mm. It's a choice. It's a matter of sitting down and making a choice. It's like, I am not a product of my circumstances. 
I am not what, you know, I am not this thing that happened to me. I am bigger and stronger than this. So when I finally clued in that, that we all had the ability, looking back at my own experiences too, I, I, I chose not to be a victim. I chose to become a, a survivor. Mm-hmm. Choice, mm-hmm. awareness, like you said, awareness and choice. When I became aware and made a choice, my life changed. Yeah. So what I would do with the victims who felt like victims, the one who said, you know, I was wearing a dress and I never should have been wearing a dress. I mm-hmm. was at this party. I never should have been at that party. I was, no, 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 that's not your fault. Whatever's happened to you is not your fault. Number one, you have to recognize that. You are not, you know, your, your circumstances. You are greater than this. So I would bring in two T-shirts. One T-shirt would say victim. The other one would say survivor. Mm. And I'd say Sally, Sarah, Jane, whatever, or, or John, because mm-hmm. I dealt with mm-hmm. uh, males who were victims. Sure. Of, I'd say, okay, now you have a choice here today. I'm going to give you one of these T-shirts. This one says victim. And this one says survivor. If you choose the victim label, you don't have to wear this T-shirt, but it will always be with you. Mm. It will be a part of your, your blood and you will feel like a victim and that will, that will seep into your relationships. It will seep into your successes and you will always feel like a victim. And I'm guaranteeing you, if you make this choice today, your life is not going to be as happy as it could be. But if you choose this one, if you choose survivor, Guess what? You are telling that man that he no longer has power control over you, that he never did, and that you are stronger than he is, and that you are your own person. You can do whatever you want in life. You are a survivor. You're a kick-ass survivor. You're a super survivor. And it's amazing how many, Mm. well, everybody chose the the survivor t-shirt, and I'd get phone calls afterwards, and they'd say, Detective Nadeau, I'm a survivor. (laughs) I'm a survivor. And I've even had people write in, you know, like after I wrote this in my book, a victim of sexual assault, mm. you know, more than one saying, until I realized I had a choice, right. I didn't realize it. And this comes back to what you said. Sometimes mm. we don't know, you know, sit down and say, I have a choice here. Right. Do I feel miserable or I do something about it? Oh, I think I'm going to do something about it. It's a choice. And it's like you said, it's it's taking it's being aware. It's that oh. awareness that you you have to recognize. And it's 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 so f- weird that our own brains can do this to us. It, it, it can can work against us for our own betterment. Yeah, uh, it, it's very it's, it's an interesting thing. Uh, and it doesn't help that that there are people that will actually take advantage of that as well. That uh, that you know, it, it doesn't help. Well, no, you're right. And uh, unfortunately, there are a lot of predators out there or there are yep. a lot of people who are into power and control over another human being. And they, as you said, they too take advantage of that. And uh, But, you know, your job, you know, and, and everybody's job as a human being is to recognize your value. You are worthy of everything. You are a valuable individual. Let nobody ever, ever tell you any different because we are all created equal. We are all more similar than we are different. And the thing that defines success from failure is choice, awareness, action, and, uh, and unhostaging yourself from the negativity that society and yourself tell you. You know, change that internal monologue from one of depression and anxiety and sadness to one of hope and action and, uh, you know, belief, because that is what is going to make you into the individual that you ought to be and that you deserve to be. 
Thank you for saying that. You've, you've now mentioned a couple of words that I want to sort of end the show on because we're running out of time pretty quickly. But I wanted to mention this. You know, when, and I, again, I'm speaking from my own experience, and Paul, you might, might be able to back this up, is that what I found when I went through what I personally dealt with, um, uh, I felt, so I dealt with the one thing, the big thing, but then, of course, it was many years later that I realized, oh, there's other stuff buried under here I wasn't aware of that has been has been preventing me from moving forward. So it's an ongoing situation. You might deal with one big thing and think you've dealt with the issues that – but there, it's layered. There's layers. So uh, be aware that if you're working on yourself and you're trying to get through something – do it. Don't hold back because there's other stuff there. Uh, you will feel so much uh, better if you do take control and start working on these things. The other thing, Paul, that you mentioned is you said hope and belief. Now, again, I want to talk about these words because I, I believe it's the stuff we can't see that is more powerful than, than anything. Mm-hmm. Hope, love, belief, mm-hmm. belief. Mm-hmm. You know, those words you can't see. You can't touch them. And yet they have they have an incredible amount of, of power over us. They do. Um, when I was in the Middle East, that's the one thing that, uh, that you know, living in Jordan and dealing with a lot of uh, the Jordanians and the Iraqis that I, I met, wonderful people. But I would look into the eyes of many of the men there who mm. felt hopeless, you know, no jobs. And, and uh, you know, they're always living under the threat of, of war. And, uh, you know, some, in, in some ways, the government would prevent them from moving out of their country because mm-hmm. they needed able-bodied men. And a lot of these men would look at me, you know, with empty eyes, you know, mm-hmm. hopeless eyes. And, uh, you know, if you are hopeless, um, there, there, there's really nothing at the end of, of the road for you. And you can change that hopelessness into hopefulness. And it really comes from within. You're right. You can't touch it. But you certainly can feel it. You absolutely can. Um, the last word I want to touch on, and you know, again, I can't help but think about uh, about the situation in, with Indigenous people and how they've been treated, and and the situations that many many communities have found themselves in, and have felt this way as a community, uh, and and the perpetual uh, uh, things that that dealt through residential schools and all these things that have have battered Indigenous people for 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 so long. Um, and hopefully that's starting to change. But again, what you're talking about is personal change. The last word is faith. Mm. It's another one of these words, you know, hope, belief, uh, love. Uh, you, you can't see them, but you can feel them. And yes. faith is is just another one of those words that you have to have all of these ingredients. You really do. Yeah, I, I, talk, I think that that's the very last chapter of my book mm-hmm. is dealing with faith. You're right. You, you cannot touch it. But it's something that, uh, that is a belief, and once you have it, it's amazing. My sister is going through a very difficult time. I, I shared this with you before the show. My, my brother-in-law uh, is in St. Mike's mm-hmm. Hospital, and uh, he, he actually died, and, mm-hmm. and, and they were able to bring him back. And this has been going on for almost two weeks now. And uh, he was in a comatose state, and he's just awakened a mm-hmm. bit. But throughout this whole thing, my sister Joyce has had faith, and, and we all have, mm. you know, like uh, believing, you know, in, in the very best. Mm-hmm. And the very best is actually happening. Mm-hmm. You know, whether or not it's going to, to end up this way at the end of it, we don't know, but we believe it will. Mm. And that faith is what, what carries her on mm. one day at a time. Without faith, my goodness, you know, life is so difficult. And what we're talking about, at least what I'm referring to here, is is having faith in yourself to be able to move yourself forward. There's other forms, and we know there's religious faith. There's all these things. But but 
I, I say this because, again, this is a realization I came to. When I was younger, I didn't think hope, faith, belief were, they were just words. Right. They just simply were words. But it, I came to realize they are so much more. They are so much more. <laughs> yes. And let's, remi- let's write these words down mm. so that we can look at them and remember that, yeah, we have internal faith. Mm-hmm. We have faith in ourselves. Mm. Because sometimes people will not give you the faith that you deserve. So give it to yourself. Very true. Uh, Paul, we're, we are like running out of time. It's been so much uh, fun having you here and, you. and being able to explore your book, uh, Taking Control of Your Life. People can find this uh, where? Where can they get a hold of it? Uh, most bookstores throughout North America and on Amazon.ca, Amazon.com, uh, Take Control of Your Life, J. Paul Nadeau. I have a J in front of yep. my name. Uh, that was my brother's idea. My okay. name is Jean-Paul, and he thought, hey, put a J in front of your name uh, when you sell your book. And I said, okay. Yeah, right, Jean-Paul. So, yeah. Uh, in fact, uh, in fact, uh, you can get uh, you can look him up online at jpaulnadeau, N-A-D-E-A-U.com. That's great. Uh, for, uh, you can see some of his presentations, his TED Talk, and under, other interviews. We're out of time, Paul. It's been great having you here. Look Thank him you. up online. And I just want to mention tomorrow we have a couple of guests online. We have Kevin Loring, the artistic director uh, for the National Arts Theatre, and we're going to talk about Indigenous theatre and their setback with some money, and also a Mexican film uh, director and maker uh, of for Hot Docs World Premiere, The Garden of Memory. That's tomorrow on Moment of Truth. Thanks again, Paul. Thank you, David.